Lord Jesus, um, Christmas is almost forced upon us as early as September this year, and I get it. I long for the joy and, yes, for the dopamine uh, that comes from being able to share such good things with people and with family, spiritual and otherwise, after not being able to do so last year. Lord, help us to sit in this just a little bit longer because we know you meet us here and that you work your will and your love in our lives, not just in the extraordinary, but in the common and the ordinary. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. So Isaiah 11, in the first nine verses there, as you heard me read just a few minutes ago, uh, it describes nothing short of a revolution, right? It is a revolution, and it is the revolution that we are waiting for. But speaking to Americans about revolution is a bit like telling a fish about water, uh, both in that we are very experienced with the idea of revolution. It's the DNA of our country. It's how our, our, our nation was founded, was through revolution. But like everything is a revolution now. We have the digital revolution. We have... You know, I should have more than one example as I'm trying to think of this. Um, but there are a lot of revolutions, okay? Um, we use this word so much, and I, we're going to talk about that, but I really want us to focus, especially on the waiting for part of, of this revolution, and especially both what happens when we don't wait and why we have such a hard time. And so to do that, let me, let me refresh our memory on verses 6 through 9 because it's going to help us see the difference between a revolution and a utopian dream. 6 through 9 says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The best way I've been able to kind of articulate and think to describe and summarize these verses is unmitigated shalom. Right? Shalom is not just the absence of conflict. It is the presence of a flourishing peace. It is the, that state of affairs where humanity and all creation is, is actually living and, and operating as it was meant to be in ways that are the most life-giving. Conflict, division, and the disintegration caused by sin is no more. And if you want to go back and read chapter 10, I highly recommend it because it's really dark. It basically describes uh, the landscape as having just been swept clear, like all of the trees are burnt down to the stump. And so when it says that a branch shall shoot forth from the stump of Jesse, it's a, it's a post-wildfire wasteland. That's the context for this promise, for this, this unmitigated shalom. Now, Isaiah's original audience they would have heard and heard with the different animals. There would have been an association with different empires, the Assyrian Empire, uh, other nation states, Egypt, that kind of a thing. And they would have understood this to have a uh, kind of an immediate political implications. In other words, Israel would not be constantly looked at as a juicy bit of steak to, to savor because of their location being so 
bountiful. It's a good piece of real estate. That would not be a problem anymore. But there's also this much bigger significance that Isaiah's original audience would have had heard other allusions to, not contemporary political issues or threats, but something that was covered in the very beginning. See, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were tempted by a snake. Um, and so when, it, when it's describing here that the nursing child should play over the hole of the cobra, this is a direct allusion to both the snake of the garden, but also God's promise to Adam and Eve when he says that a seed will come from Eve, in other words, an offspring that will crush the head of the serpent. This is bringing all of this, all of this together. And what God is telling his people through Isaiah, don't, for, don't forget because I won't. I will not neglect my promise to you. I will bring it about in due time. If it's taking a while, I'm God. <laughs> There's a good reason for it, even if you can't see it, actually, especially because you can't see it. Now, this vision of, of, of these like four verses, this, is, this passage in general has shaped Western culture for 2,000 years Right, this, is, this has actually been a part of like, a lot of the historical documents around the Magna Carta, the Reformation, um, the Puritans when coming over from England to start a new religious colony referenced these verses. Like even Abraham Lincoln and MLK Jr., all of them have referenced these, ver these verses as inspiration for the kind of society that they want to see come forth. Here's the question I want to ask. Well, there's two questions. One, how's that working out? <laughs> but two, is that actually even a good thing? Is that a good thing? Let me, let me put it this way. Um, while this is a, a, a far more secular example, the French Revolution was highly optimistic of human, uh, human nature. And the entire French Revolution is that we would be, we would be free of, especially religious establishment, uh, but also the, the royalty. And in a nine-month period, 2,639 people were guillotined in public. And another 50,000 more died because they were either shot or they died and starved in a prison somewhere. They call that nine-month period a, the reign of terror. And what this illustrates is, is that a, any human, merely human liberation is almost always going to require or result with one, some oppression or another. And we can talk about different examples, but the, the historical context for every single one either is a liberty that has been restrained and not gone as far as it should, or it requires some kind of oppression of one person or another. The reason for this is because we, want, we, we won't wait. We won't wait for God's revolution, and we want to set up our own utopian dreams. Um, someone who can speak with a lot of authority to this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, if you don't know, he was a, a theologian who was uh, a German Lutheran theologian who watched Hitler's Reich rise in Germany. And he says this about the pursuit of utopias. He says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may ever be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates 
this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. That is a huge burden to carry, for the record. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. It is not we who build. Christ builds the church. Whoever is mindful to build the church is surely way well on the way to destroying it, for he will build a temple to idols without wishing or knowing it. We must confess he builds. We must proclaim he builds. We must pray to him and he will build. We do not know his plan. It is a great comfort which Jesus gives to his church. I don't know about you, but just as a church planter, you know, who like, like I, all of this is, is, is what I love to do and to start a church and to like, because it seems that there is a need for a church in Boulder County. I've never said it is a great comfort describing not knowing God's plan. That comes from a place of profound trust and patience to not pursue your own utopia. And this is coming from someone who is watching Nazi Germany come into being in front of him. It is one thing for Isaiah 11 to be an inspiration for patience and an inspiration for hope because this is where Things are going to end up one day, and it's another thing for it to be an aspiration for utopia. This word utopia, by the way, um, it comes from the Greek, and it's, it's, it's hilarious because it means literally no place, um, and it's one letter uh, difference from the Greek word that would, would, would communicate good place, the good place. So the difference between the good place and no place is just one letter. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, now, I know I'm talking really ambiguous, like, huge meta picture here, but I want you to like think about those relationships and those communities that you are a part of, that the dream of those things and not the thing in front of you ended up destroying that thing, right? And let's just talk about marriage, for example, because whether you are single or actually married, we all have a dream of what marriage will be like that is not reality, Right? We all long for that because it's, it's scratching an existential itch that we are absolutely made for. But if we love the spouse that we want our spouse to be instead of the spouse we have in front of us, it's not going to go well. Even if the thing that you long for is a very good thing, you're still not loving them. You're loving the idea of them. Now, let's talk about church. Church in this, in this sense, right? Many of you have described and, and talked about how the table is, is different than most, or, um, than most evangelical churches. It just feels different. You feel more welcome. And that's great. I celebrate that. But I want to ask the question, how do we know that we're not building our own utopia? How do we know that our, we're, we're not trying to start a church that is an idealized community that looks just like us, or however we define that? I would, I would encourage you to ask yourself this, questions like this. Are you glad that a certain type of person isn't here? Do, do you get satisfaction? Does that dopamine start hitting when you see on your news feed how another church is handling the pandemic or politics, and you're like, I'm glad we don't do that? That's where the pride sneaks in. 
And I would encourage you, if that is the case, I would, I would, we need to repent as a church if that's the case. At any place, anywhere that that happens, we need to be quick to repent because Isaiah 11 doesn't say that the lion is excluded. It says that they're lying down together. It says that they are also included, the aggressors or the people that we have a harder time with. In the last two years, I don't think there's anyone here who hasn't known what it's like to have a utopian dream break the community that they're a part of or their relationship, church or otherwise. Um, I have a friend, actually, his name's Mike, uh, who <laughs> he was telling me recently that he, so he's a pastor uh, elsewhere. He's not in the area here. Um, but he was telling me that they realized, he and his wife realized that uh, two Christmases ago, they sent out 125 Christmas cards. Last Christmas, they sent out 75 Christmas cards. And this Christmas, they're sending out 25 Christmas cards. All because of lost relationship, because of, of, of different, differing beliefs and ways of trying to figure that out and working it out in community. Um, in fact... As I think about this, I would like you guys to wave. I'm going to do a selfie because I'm going to send him a Christmas card from the table to add tw- to make it 26. So can you guys wave? Awesome. Thank you. His name is Mike. He'll appreciate it. Um, so why do we try so hard? Like, do we just quit and give up? Like, what is that about us that, that is longing for this and so impatient and we still don't get it right. <laughs> this passage tells us that we trust our judgment more than our saviors. We trust our perception, our ability to see more than our saviors. And we're rebels without a clue. <laughs> right? Let me reread verse 3. Because the second half of this, it says, He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his eyes hear. This is an intentional antithesis. It's saying, unlike every other king... This one doesn't base his judgment on what is visible and external or on the surface. Instead, it is with righteousness that he does so. Righteousness. You see, utopian dreams, this is not a modern thing. Uh, This is not a modern temptation. Even in Jesus' day, zealots thought that they had read the signs right and that they were going to enact a political revolution to throw off the Roman Empire, and then the Roman Empire said, that's cute, Um, and in the first century, sacked Jerusalem, right? They thought that they saw God's promises unfolding, and when they took it into their own hands, instead of waiting for God to do it, it blew up in their face. We live in this age right now. I was actually telling somebody this the the other day, that when we first started the table five and a half years ago now, my primary lens for, like, in this context was like, okay, how does grace meet us in shame? Because a lot of people haven't heard that part of the gospel. They've heard the guilt part, right? But not the shame part. Well, over the last year and a half, we've moved on from that. We're now in an age of anxiety. And that is, that's really bad news, actually. Like, because if you, uh, if, you, if you think that you are kind of having to constantly be hypervigilant to the next threat, then you don't even, like, shame is like a first world problem, right? Because now you're, you're, you're just anxious all the time. You can't even get there. And on top of that, 
anxiety compromises your ability to perceive things rightly, like even more so than what, you know, Isaiah is talking about here. And when we are in that place, what we long for and what we think will answer that question or resolve our anxiety is certainty. And this is why, if you just watch the news or whatever, like, it is a competition to see who can be the most certain with their conclusions. Because certainty is the only way to cut through the white noise of anxiety. That's part of what's going on here. But it's a cheap counterfeit for hope. Hope is better than certainty because it's not so fragile. This is why, by the way, uh, I've talked to several of you who have friends or family who are caught up in conspiracy theories. Like, that's what's, it going, that's what's going on here. And so if you want to help them in this age, the, the answer is not to just tell them they're wrong. The answer is to be with them. It's actually to help reduce their anxiety. So we are in this, this pandemic of misguided certainty in our own judgment, and, and open-handedness, just like across the board, has become an endangered species. And so we think to ourselves, why should we wait on God? We got this. Maybe you're not convinced. I get it. Maybe you're like, I don't know. I've got some pretty good judgment. I've made some good life choices, made some bad life choices like the Pop-Tart I had this morning. Sugar crash. Um, but let me just ask you this. When I was reading through the passage earlier and you came to the second half of four, verse 4, how did you react? When it says, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Other translations say, slay the wicked. How did you respond to that internally? Just be honest with yourself. You don't have to say it out loud. Did it sound harsh? Did you say to yourself, I don't know about this. I believe in a God of grace and love, and I don't know how that could be true. Or maybe you don't believe in a God of grace and love, and you're like, I'm, my friend dragged me here, and um, this is why I don't believe. Let me answer with a quote from a guy named Miroslav Volf. This guy, uh, has, he is a current professor at Yale Divinity, uh, but he is, his entire family was caught up in the Balkan uh, war in Czechoslovakia in the 80s and 90s and saw some terrible stuff. His dad was a pastor at the time and was a peacemaker between warring factions. He says this in his book, uh, Exclusion and Embrace, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. <laughs> Just pause there and let that sink in. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose families, and I cut some stuff out there because kids, your point to them, should we not retaliate? Why not? Like, what do you say to that? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. Do you hear that? There's an impatience. We, won't, we don't want to wait. We want to take this into our own hands. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. 
If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Having some epistemological humility, having, being able to just say, you know, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. I definitely don't have certainty, but I have hope. There are a few things more revolutionary in the world right now. As I talked about last week and the week before that, there are a few things more revolutionary than people who disagree with each other on the things that are destroying and dividing society than getting together to break bread and have wine to celebrate and give thanks. It's so revolutionary. In fact, I would encourage you, anyone, and by the way, I'm not talking about confidence or conviction. I'm talking about certainty. But anyone, I would encourage you that anyone who sounds very certain, you should be, you should be skeptical. Because the only certainty we can really have is that we need a truly righteous revolutionary to do this for us. Let me read verses 2 through 5 because this is where the meat of everything is for Isaiah. It says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. By the way, all of these, he's, just, he's describing all the different facets that would make a king worthy of ruling. Okay? And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You see, the difference between revolution and mere rebellion is verse 3, the first line. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is the crux. Like, there's a, there's a structure in, in this kind of poetic uh, way of framing this that points to this one part of the verse in particular. This is our problem. Our problem is that we love the gift more than the giver. We love peace more than the prince of peace. And we love salvation even more than we do the Savior who gifted it to us. Anytime we get so focused on our utopian dreams, we are disqualified from being a revolutionary. But thank God, because this is describing the one that we celebrate at Christmas, whose love of God compelled him to obey the Father even to death on a cross. He entered into human history not to beat us over the head and just tell us how much we're wrong, though that happens sometimes, but to be with us to address the fear and anxiety that is unavoidable, an unavoidable consequence of living in a broken and fallen world. <laughs> right? Every time Israel rebels uh, in the Old Testament, God, in essence, says, you have not loved me as I have loved you. That's the root of all of the problems from Genesis to Revelation until God fixes it. David is referenced here because he's the closest. He got, he got the closest more than anyone else, but if you know his story, you know that he is catastrophically flawed. Jesus was not flawed. As God made flesh, he, both, he fulfilled both sides of God's covenant promises to his people, both his deliverance and our obedience. 
That's why it's good news because we could never do that. Only he can. So in a minute, I'm going to take questions for the Q&A, but my point is this, that we, we put the cart before the horse and end up perpetuating wickedness, evil, and impression when we think that we are the advent that others have been waiting for. And then therefore, we self-righteously don't think we need to wait for the advent of Jesus. You know what? Maybe the best thing we can do right now is be still and know that God is God and still at the reins. I think if we just did that, it would be amazing. I'm not saying don't love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not saying don't serve or help those in need. I'm saying do it with a freedom that comes that, that it comes from the fact, the fact that it doesn't depend on you to fix all the brokenness in the world, that God is doing it. And it doesn't depend on your faithfulness. It depends on Jesus' faithfulness. So if you want to grow in spiritual maturity, enjoy God. If you want to gain wisdom, enjoy God. If you want to see clearly, enjoy God. And by that, I mean something Absolutely revolutionary. Make Sunday worship your absolute highest priority. Commit to community. Read your Bible and pray. And love your neighbors yourself. I'm not saying it's easy, but it absolutely, really, truly is that simple. Okay, let me see what questions we got. No questions. Cool. Are you sure? I mean, I know you're sure. You didn't get it. Anyway, if you have questions afterwards, bring them, bring them to Taste and See, and we'll, we'll, we'll dig in. So let me pray as we move to communion. Lord Jesus, there is... I confess... I confess my own anxiety. <laughs> I confess an urgency that does not come from conviction but comes from a restless impatience and, and frankly, a doubt that, that you're at work. And Lord, you still forgive. And even as I'm saying this, Lord, I, I feel that anxiety, uh, the volume on it going down because it doesn't depend on me. And that is the lie that I, I believe, that it depends on me. So, Lord, whatever lie any of us are believing this morning and whatever phrasing or flavor of it depends on me, I pray, Lord, you would uh, release us from that burden and that curse because we can't bear it. And, Lord, help us instead to celebrate and give thanks that for, to, for unto us a child has been born and we live in an age in a time, and a circumstance that we can look back and see the glory of God made man and know that if you're going to do that, we have only greater things to come. Lord, free us with your grace and your love. Let me pray this in your name. Amen.